St. Leo 360, a 360 degree overview of the St. Leo University community. Welcome to another episode of the St. Leo 360 podcast. My name is Greg Lindbergh. On this episode, we are speaking with one of our STEAM faculty members uh, who teaches in our criminal justice programs. And uh, she is uh, an assistant professor of criminal justice in our Center for Online Learning. And she's also a retired Army colonel and longtime uh, member of the Army. Uh, Dr. Angela Manos, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here with you today. Absolutely. Really looking forward to this conversation and, and diving into your background. And we definitely have plenty to cover here. So really appreciate it. So first off, uh, Dr. Manos, if you could just give us a little brief bio about yourself, where you were born, where you grew up, and your your, your early years. Um. Well, my dad was um, a naval in the navy. He was a uh, navy war officer, and um, so we all the children were born in different states. <laughs> so we really didn't claim claim any state. And then once my brother was old enough, he went in the army. My other brother went in the Marines, and then I went in the Army. So <laughs> wow. we probably think home until we retired. And I, um, my father's deceased now, and um, I retired here in Florida. So I guess I call my home Florida. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yep. And so I would imagine it was, uh, you know, because of your your father and and you know, family military service that kind of inspired you to enlist yourself? Right. I mean, the whole family was in it. And my, the only thing my father said to me, I remember when I told him I wanted to do military, he said, the only thing you cannot do is join the Navy and go on a ship. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that's what was a long time ago when um, <laughs> he didn't think that was a bright idea. And, of course, now women are doing everything. Wow. Interesting. Well, I enlisted um, in 1979, oh God, it was 100 years ago. I um, was the first female to train in, um, in what they call uh, the singles training with uh, men. So it was the first time the men and women were housed together and did all the same training together, you know, as a police corps, military police corps. Right. So it, it was it was a quite an experience, quite a learning experience. But um, what you actually found was that uh, the, the soldiers didn't have a problem with it at all. We just wanted to survive together. We didn't care. Um, I think it was a little bit harder for the leadership than it was for the, the soldiers themselves. We just wanted to get get along day by day. Interesting. And I'm curious, how were, how were women viewed at the time, you know, in the military, just thinking back to when you initially got in? Um, we were, you know, considered, you know, the weaker sex, of course, and um, were given the admin jobs and... Um, it was a you know typical what you see in 
um, in society. And but one of the things the army has always done all the services, not just the army, but all the services, is step out ahead of society. So when I went in, you know, I went into the military police corps, and um, they had not they had not had women in the military police corps. Well, they the women were separate from the men, you know, before they lived in different barracks, they trained in different areas, and eventually they would all come together on a post somewhere and work together. But the way this was set up was that it was one-stop unit training. You went through basic together and you went through your unit training together and then you were sent to your unit together. And and you were always um, mixed with the male and female. You weren't separated. I see. Makes sense. I was very old. Old in the sense compared to most of the people. I was 25 when I went in. And most of the people I was around were 18 and 19 years old. So it was a little bit easier for me than I think the, the younger ones. Um, and my daddy kind of told me what to expect. And and so had the, um, uh, the recruiter. And... Um, but I had been on the Cab County Police Department in um, the Cab County, Georgia, before I went in. So I seen how it was in the civilian world, in a man's world. So it, it wasn't a um, a complete transition in the sense that I knew what was coming. You know, I, I told so it would be different, but. There really wasn't a lot of difference at first, and but it all worked out fine. I mean, now I look at you know the women are going to ranger school, the women are flying, flying the uh, fighter aircraft, and there's not anything the women aren't doing. And you know, a lot of people ahead of me set that stage that allowed you know me to do my part, and then those that fall on to do their part, which shows you that you know change can be painful and it can be challenging but it can be very good for society as a whole sure yeah that's a great point let's uh, dive a little more into specific jobs specific duties that you had uh, while serving in the army well i was enlisted for three years and i was just a regular mp um you know um, and actually what I did though was, um, they saw I had, I already had my bachelor's degree when I went in from Georgia State. And so they, um, wanted me to stay at the MP school there. It was, at that time it was in at Alabama and I taught at the MP school and I taught corrections and criminal law, you know, the things that a typical military police would need to work on the street. And I did that for about three years. And then my commander called me in and said, do you want to be an officer? And I said, sure. <laughs> and the money's <laughs> like 10 times more. <laughs> right. <laughs> It'd be nice to be one. And um, he recommended me, and I appeared in front of a board. And um, I got accepted. And so in 1981, I went to what they used to call Fort Benning School for Boys which was the Officer Candidate School. Um, and now, of course, it's just the Officer Candidate School. It's not the 
mini school for boys. And um, and everybody goes to that. I mean, that became a norm as well. Um, and everybody attends that school. It becomes, you know, because commissions is already listed in the Army. And um, it was it was probably one of the roughest things I did. But I'm, I'm glad that I did it because I think that it allowed me to help a lot more people in the military uh, with my leadership than it, I would have been able to if I had stayed enlisted. Sure, I see. And then uh, I do understand uh, that you were, you did serve some uh, deployments, correct? Um, yeah, I, um, as an officer, I, well, I went to a lot of places where I didn't stay a long time. Um, the longest one I stayed in was my last one, which was Afghanistan for 18 months. But I went to Somalia, to Haiti, um, Macedonia, Kosovo. I mean, they're you know, third world countries that were having serious problems um, with uh, sickness and no food and no leadership. And just, oh, it was just so sad. I mean, you know, a lot of orphanages and the poor children were starving to death. And, you know, we were doing our best we could to get them fed and try to bring some kind of, you know, peace to the countries. Um, and um, you just had to, had to remember that, you know, you couldn't make it all right overnight, but you, you, everything you did made a difference the better and just keep trying to do that and those around you and I, you know, there were a lot of I was like I said I was older so I think it's a lot easier for me there were a lot of young young soldiers 18 19 just you know their first time away from home that were put into these environments and you know a lot of what I did was spent time with them trying to get them to understand you know they may not see the big picture of what's going on, but there is someone that knows what's going on in the big picture, and their role is very important. And no matter, no hard, no matter how hard it was to watch or to participate in, it was necessary to get to where we needed to go and what those people needed. And they, and eventually, you know, after a couple of months or so, they start to see some improvement in the population, the way the population was living. Hmm. And I'm sure that was pretty rewarding, you know, knowing that you and your your comrades were involved in helping those people. Yeah, and the kids would to know you. they come up to the fence line, and they tell you their name, and, you know, they do the high five, and you give them candy bars. I mean, just little things like that, you know, motivated you and kept you going um, to, to be able to do that. <laughs> and the kids would chase after our vehicles, and then look, they look, the kids in Somalia could run faster than our vehicles, and they wore flip flops. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. It was so funny to watch them. And, but um, you just had to always tell yourself, you know, I'm here because God wants me here, and I'm going to do my best to do what's right and stand for my values. And as long as you never forgot that. You couldn't go wrong. Yeah, that's a great outlook. 
I'm curious, how did it change your perspective visiting those those third world countries, you know, just kind of knowing the the freedoms we take for granted in the United States and, and everything? I guess it's kind of disheartening in the sense that um, I saw just, I, I mean, I, I saw how bad other people have it. I mean, just how horrific their everyday life is. I mean, you know, you hear the stories about them walking miles to get clean water. They don't have clothes. I mean, all that stuff's true. That you, know, you see those commercials on TV, and I think so many people don't believe that's how these people live, and it is how they live. And you know, and and people get shot, you know, for going to school and things like that. all that happens. So when I come home to our country, which is civilized and has these great opportunities. And then um, can't seem to stabilize itself. It's really disheartening because I think you know we've got it. You know we got God, we've got a good country, we've got all these wonderful things in our lives, and yet we still attack each other. And and one of the things you learn in those other countries, you know. You, you, they don't look at you as any different than them. You're all one, and they all work together. And um, as a general, you know, the general population. And we, we go into Afghanistan. Of course, it's a different story because you have the two, the, the Taliban competing against the Afghan people. But they work together. I mean, you know, the, the, I mean that's why they're so successful. And and then, when, you know, now, and I, I see here when the, you know, we're having the Black Lives Matters, which I think is a great thing, except that instead of protesting, people are rioting, you know, you know, we have the right to protest. So I think we should take advantage of that and not use it as a stepping stone to actually destroying property and hurting other individuals or doing those kind of things and that makes me sad when I think about what other people are facing that we don't appreciate what we have to that point sure it, it just you know it, it just makes me sad just because I sit and think about you know there and here and what's going on now but I think you know we're a strong country I think we'll come through it because we've gone through a lot of changes in this country. Um, and, you know, I believe thoroughly that God knows what he's doing. And, and we'll come out on top. But I think we'll have some growing pains, if you will, in that process. Yeah, that's, that's very well said. Uh, just going back to you had mentioned serving in Afghanistan. If you could, uh, if you could share a little bit, a little more about that experience. Yeah, I was in. I was there eighteen months. Um, I was a senior mentor to um, the Minister of Interior, which equates to our uh, Secretary of Defense. He was responsible for the security of the country, in interior country. And um, so what we had to do was stand up. Um, they had n no, we want, they wanted a national police force. So 
their police all went to the same person who stood up a police academy, got the material they needed to know, then put the policemen through that, put them in a uniform, put them out at the different points they were going to, and, you know, and told them what to do and how to do it. And, of course, there were a lot of challenges in there. One, you didn't know if you were talking to somebody who was really for the country or if you were talking to a member of the Taliban. And two, um, they'd always been tribal people. I mean, they live in tribes. They're still tribal people. Hmm. And so they handle problems in their tribes. So when someone would try to come in from outside their tribe, and do something it made them very angry so it was it was a real challenge um i mean we got run, run <laughs> we were run out of many an area <laughs> mm. physically run out of many an area because they did not welcome us um in there um but there were a lot of places that did work but we would take soldiers eight policemen um and put them on point and we no one would see them again maybe for a couple of months because there's only one road that went around the country and in the winter you couldn't go around it so you couldn't get to them in the winter hmm. and they they would lose their feet and hands and some of them died from frostbite um but that's how rugged the country is um you couldn't get across the mountain on the road um at certain times of the year so you know we those were the kind of things we i said we don't deal with it you know i think about they figure out how to do it and 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 these soldiers or policemen would just go into their place and say okay here's where i'm going to be they give them their food their beds and that you know the weapons and their ammunition and you know say we'll see you in a few months you know I, i just couldn't imagine you know um, and they have no idea what's going to happen to them over the next few months. And they were right on the border with Iran, and that was a challenge with Afghanistan. you got China on one side, Russia on one side, Pakistan on one side, and Iran on the other side. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> right. So, and that's why it's such a valuable country. Any of those countries would love to be able to traverse straight through that country. Sure. And, of course, they, of course they can't do that. So, um, it's just, it's, the people are wonderful. I mean, I personally, like I said, I spent 18 months there, and most of the time I was was with the Afghan people and the minister, I was very seldom with with troops, and um, it was just, the people were just so kind. They're very religious, as you know. Um, and we, I would talk to the ones that spoke English you know, about the religion, and you know, and their belief in Mary and Joseph and Jesus is the same as ours. Um, and so it was interesting talking to them and um, about what they believed in, and of course their fights over who the actual bloodline of Jesus. And um, and it was so interesting to realize these people were so close in that 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 land that country that the you know the blood who has the, the actual blood of you know jesus running through them is who they wanted to be the leader of their country and you think about oh my goodness 
that, that's amazing that that country feels that close, you know, to Jesus Christ. And um, it was interesting listening to their stories and look at the pictures they had and, and everything that's going on. I, I just hope someday they do find peace. And, you know, and you know that the big, they had a big um, heroin problem. But of course, we get 97% of the heroin that they have. Hmm. So um, that's a big problem for them. But if you took away all the heroin they used, I mean, the country would die. I mean, that's how it supports itself. Wow. Yeah, they, they, uh, so, you know, you can't, if people, it's a typical thing about drugs. If you didn't have a, a buyer, you wouldn't need a supplier. True. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things where you can point your finger at them, but you can't do it unless you point it back at yourself, you know, or whoever is buying it. Um, but I love the people in general and the, and the children. And, but, you know, there's even there, you saw the children walking around with hardly any clothes on, and they were barefooted in the dead of the winter, and the roads were one lane or no lane or dirt. And, you know, it's got a long way to go, but it's got a city. I mean, Kabul, this, you know, the capital is, um, it, it, it's been destroyed a lot of it from the bombings, but, and, um, you know, it, it's, it's civilized, I guess you would say. Sure. Um, civilized, but, you know, there, every day a car blew up or a bus blew up or, building was blown up or, or not every day but I could tell the time but what was amazing to me was they could have a bus load, bus load it could blow up and within 30 minutes they could have that street completely cleaned up all the things that were in that bus everything gone in 30 minutes you would have never known that there was a bomb there that exploded and lost all those people. Hmm. They were they were just so well prepared to deal with that, and it just it was just amazing. And then, and then the people would be walking along, talking to each other, buying groceries and stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, we could not do that. There's conditions to that, but I, in, in America, if that happened, I, I just don't think we could handle it the same way. Yeah, that is but fascinating. It's, it's sad that they are like that, that they are so accustomed to it. Right, and that when something like that happens, it's just such a an everyday occurrence that's, yeah. Let's talk about uh, some of the relationships or connections that you made uh, while serving and, and perhaps anyone that you still, you know, are friends with today and keep up with and just what other people around you, kind of the impact they made on you. Well, um, my dearest friend actually is deceased. He was my mentor hmm. for a long, long time. Um, and in the military, I mean, those guys like that, you, you respected them for your leader. I mean, even though he was out of the military and I was out of the military, I still called him sir. You know, I would never use his first name, and he's deceased, and I still today wouldn't use his first name. Hmm. But you and 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 when just the, the the officers, a lot of times it was the wives 
of the officers that you learned a lot from too um because they saw what they went through and understood things that you know i didn't understand because i didn't see that part of them or that part of their life and i was an enlisted aide um to the what then was the deputy chief of staff of operations um for the army and worked in the pentagon um I worked in the Pentagon three, three or four times hmm. and for about eight years total. And um, I met a lot of people there that I got very close to, um, had a lot of rank, and were so smart. I mean, those guys could take an issue and lay it out. I mean, uh, uh, an issue with multiple dimensions to it and lay it out and and figure out what needs to be done and the steps to be taken. And they, most of the time they use the backward plan, backward planning method. But it, it, they never stopped astounding me on what they could accomplish and what they could see, that their vision. Um, and the one thing the Army's always done is always done since I was, when I was enlisted, it, it never changed. They always stood on their values just like St. Leo. You know, everything was about the values. Everything was about, you know, those core values and about leadership. And I think that had a, has had a lot to do with the success and the movement of the military. I mean, you know, the military, when they first had um, um, African-Americans in the military, they didn't live on post. They weren't allowed to live in military housing. I mean... Colin Powell, I don't know if you've ever read his book, but if you haven't, you'd be, be very interesting. It talks about his life as a soldier in the military. And he ended up being our highest-ranking um, military member. Hmm. As chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But at one point, he wasn't even allowed to live in the houses. And he stayed. And then he made it that far. So you think about it, and you think, there's some brilliant people that run the organization. No doubt but about is, that. It, but it's based on the values. Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned that, the connection to St. Leo in terms of our core values, and that's that's great to hear. But, it's, it's, you know, every time I teach, every time I um, write to one of the soldiers or talk about our papers or whatever, you know, I always talk about the values because, you know, when they get tired or feel like they're not going to do it you know you just got to say look look you know you you got the values you know you want to do this just you know give it all you got and and, and if you do that you'll do well sure and it, it, you know it gives them some sense of security and you know that's what values do for you exactly. foundation to stand on yeah no question I also understand that you uh, did receive a, a Purple Heart, and I'm curious if you could explain, you know, the reason behind that and what that means to you. Well, I got, uh, um, I was in a couple of incidents, I was in a bombing, and then um, I, I lost most of my hearing in both my ears, so I had two hearing aids, and I, you know, and then I had a head injury. Um, I got the Purple Heart, and I mean, it, it's almost, you know, I, I appreciate it, but there's so many people that 
got it, for, you know, they lost a leg or an arm or two legs or two arms or, you know, and, and mine, mine are invisible, you know? Um, sure. So I, I, um, it, I, I don't see myself as, as, Deserving, I guess I would say, as, as some of the, so many of the others. I mean, there's just been so many really injured, injured people, um, and I, I do hate that I lost most of my hearing because I can't. <laughs> I aggravate everybody just saying, "Huh," <laughs> but, right. and I get hearing aids. But, um, but then again, you know, I felt good that you know I was in. You know, I got a combat action badge because I was in combat, and. Um, so, people know that I really did serve my country. And, you know, we wear those kind of things to demonstrate that. Absolutely. And I wear my St. Leo mask, by the way, every time I go out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We appreciate that. <laughs> and just kind of reflecting on your overall experience in the military, what would you say were the big takeaways? What kind of life lessons did you learn? Um, you got to depend on other people whether you want to or not. Um, you got to keep your chin up no matter how hard things are, go- are getting to be. You got, you know, like I said over and over, you got to stand on your values. You cannot, you cannot let them waver at all. And if you do that, stand on that foundation, it may get shaky. You may feel a little shaky, but those foundations, not, that foundation is not going to crack. And and you're going to be fine. And, and God's, I mean, every time I thought, you know, I don't know if I can do this. I, I, I mean, many times I felt afterwards, God made that right. It was, you know, I shouldn't have been worried about that. <laughs> yeah. But you know, but that's such a nice feeling to um realize that when that happens. You know, you know, God saved me a number of times and you know, those around me. And um so I've learned to really trust in in God and trust that He knows what He's doing and He knows He's gonna get us through all this thing that's going on, you know, COVID-19, you know, changes in our university, and it's all going to be okay. You know, and it may be bumpy, but it'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a great outlook. And what kind of advice would you have for, let's say there's someone listening to this this interview and is considering enlisting in the military, what kind of advice would you give that individual? I would tell them to make sure that's what they wanted to do and that their family was in it with them. Because they, they will need their family. Um, it can be a very lonely place, lonely place if they don't have a support system. Because they, you know, need to have that to be able to go to. And again, that could be the church as their support system. It doesn't have to be, you know, a particular person or a particular family member. It can be a church member. Um, they need to have some connection with the outside world that supports them. Sure. That's, that's great advice. And I understand, uh, you did serve for, was it about 32 years in total? Mm-hmm. 
Oh, wow. Well, hey, just kind of to wrap that up, thank you so much for your service, and mm-hmm. we're very grateful to have someone of your caliber and, and experience to be able to teach our students. I love that. I absolutely love it. It keeps me well, and it keeps my mind, it keeps me sane. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> yep. And I did want to just briefly touch on uh, kind of your post-military life uh, before we get into your teaching career. Uh-huh. And I, again, I'm not sure how much you, you want to share, but it's it's totally up to you. But I understand that uh, you have had a service dog. You've been involved with the Wounded Warrior Project. And if you could just elaborate a little more on some of those those initiatives and experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they're, they're, um, every year it gets better and better with the, the Veterans Affairs and um, the uh, VA um, helping veterans adjust to coming back home i mean it's hard i mean i got ptsd um and that's what my service dog is for and um it's just you know i wake up night and still have the nightmares and um and and many 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 do um and again that's when you you know i wake up i have a nightmare i lay down and i just say a prayer thankful that i'm where i am um, it's, it, you know, it's one of those things where you, you don't, you want to share with people, but you don't want to share with people. It's, you know, cause you don't want to get everybody around you sad, but you know, I had the right people I talked to, um, the wounded, Mo- wounded warrior project is a great organization that provides activities for wounded warriors to go out to do together. Um, to keep them, their strength up. Um, the USO supports the soldiers. I mean, there's just, you know, the, um, the uh, Department of um, Wounded Veterans Organization. Uh, all of those help. You just have to, you know, make the effort to, to get involved with them. Um, but they are, they're, they're doing more and more all the time. But, you know, I, I, um, I, I isolate myself more than I used to, um, but that's one of the reasons I am on my career so much and being a full-time online teacher with St. Leo is that I can still be helpful and learn myself and teach others and um, be giving and, and yet not have to... Uh, do more than I can now. Sure, sure. I know you did mention earlier that that you did uh, attain your bachelor's degree before your military career, right? Mm-hmm. I got my um, doctorate degree from the University of Kansas in 1992 um, when I was stationed at in Kansas, um, and. Uh, then I moved, where did I go from Kansas? I think I went from one cold spot to another. I think I went back to Washington, D.C. and got put on a study program, you know, where doing, um, where the Army was looking at different programs and that kind of stuff. And I was, finally, I was selected as the commander, installation commander. It's like a mayor of this, of, uh, 
Fort McPherson. It's Fort McPherson. Hmm. And it's like being a mayor. You have a fire department, police department, hospital, doctor, you know, veterinary. I mean, the whole thing. It's just like a city. And um, so I went there. And um, St. Leo wanted a place to teach there. And so, of course, we, you know, said yes. And after a while, I, that was 2003 or four. And I started teaching for him as an adjunct. Um, and then when I finally fully retired in 2013, they made me a um, full-time faculty um, online. And that was the first one they had made a full-time faculty online. And, but I stayed in the criminal justice department and, and worked an answer under them. So it was, it's been quite a few years. Yeah. I've been with them quite wow. a few years now. I don't even know to be honest with you exactly how many it's been. I know from, I know I've been full time since 2013. I don't know how many years I taught before that. <laughs> Wow, yeah, so it sounds like at least probably 15 or more total. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. And, uh, and I've, I, I've always taught in the um, criminal justice because that was always my field was law enforcement and corrections, and, and I love doing that. And I taught you know, leadership class, which I like. I taught that one. I taught the um, final class that they do where they put together a police, police department. Um, I really enjoy corrections with them. I really enjoy the criminal law due process because that's very, um, they get very active in that one. Um, and, you know, and the way I teach is I, I, I like the discussion part um, and getting them to talk and then answer them back. And, and, and I'm, I'm really happy they added Zoom classes. Um, so we have, uh, you know, the possibility to see him, see him for one hour uh, every week now. And, um, and I've had two or three, I haven't had a lot show up, but I'm hoping as time goes on, more and more people will start coming to Zoom classes. Um, but anyway, we record them so they can look at them at their leisure. And what I'm hoping is as they see how successful they are, then they'll start coming. And, and the library comes on one of my days and teaches them how to use APA and the library and live guides and everything else. So they see that it's worthwhile. Sure. And I like to be very, very interactive with them. That's great. Yeah. And I'm sure, like you said, just the, the Zoom aspect mm-hmm. and, and actually being able to see the students and talk to them face to face is it's, it's pretty powerful. Mhm. I love it. And you know, before I was doing the, um, I do the online um, association, criminal justice association, where we just pick topics that are of interest and do presentations for the whole association um, every few Thursdays. And I usually do that. And that one, you know, that varies from how many people come to that or whatever, but. Um, I can use those in my Zoom classes too, though, so it's a great benefit for me. Sure, yeah, and I have heard a lot of great things about that group. 
uh, the Criminal mm-hmm. Justice Association and how it really connects and, and strengthens those relationships among the online students. Mm-hmm. What would you say a prospective student who might be listening, what could they expect from an online program, you know, specifically a, a criminal justice program at St. Leo? I think that they can expect to learn what they need to know um, and they can be very comfortable with asking questions and and receiving the feedback that they need um, because the, the people who teach are who, and I'll say this the people who are in criminal justice love criminal justice and I think it comes out in all the teachers in criminal justice so you know they get excited when the student asks a question or student has a you know interest in something or the papers are very good and in, in the ones I get because um, these students are really interested in it uh, and so you know it makes it fun uh, and so I think they can expect to get a lot of positive feedback and, and a lot of knowledge so that they will use um, on the ground and a lot of our students are already in that line of work so I use them as much as I can to talk to the other students, you know, say, you know, you, you've experienced this, how did you find it to be? And I think that helps a lot because, you know, students like to learn from those who actually are doing it at the time. Sure, yeah. And just to wrap up here, uh, what would you say as far as fulfillment, what do you get the most fulfillment and enjoyment out of when it comes to teaching it makes me feel alive, and it makes me feel like I'm doing something good for the world. Nice. It's, a, it's a gift to me. Absolutely. That's, that's a great way to put it, and great to hear. All right. Well, uh, once again, we've been speaking with Dr. Angela Manos uh, here on the St. Leo 360 podcast. And Dr. Manos, I just want to thank you so much for your time and insight and and you know sharing uh, your life story with us really appreciate it thank you greg i appreciate you talking to me absolutely Alrighty. all right all right bye-bye take care bye now to hear more episodes of the saint leo 360 podcast visit saintleo.edu forward slash podcast to learn more about saint leo's programs and services call 877 877- 622-2009 or visit saintleo.edu.